0: There was a man, there was a man, not just any man, not an ordinary man, but an extraordinary man. There was a man from the land of Uz whose name was Job. You know, 20 weeks ago, we we began in Job 1, verse number 1, simply because there is this unique man, unlike any other man in the scriptures. Unlike any other man that's ever lived, for the Lord said he was the greatest man on the planet. He said that about nobody else except Job. There's something unique about Job's life that we need to master. We need to understand. We need to study. Because everything is centered around an attitude that far surpasses my attitude and your attitude. An attitude that was shaped by God. His perception of God goes way beyond our perception of God. And he doesn't know or didn't know nearly as much as we know. But his perception of God changed his entire outlook. Once he lost everything. Once he lost his health. Once his wife began to move him to curse God and die. Once these three miserable comforters came into his life and began to lambast his name and slander his name and level all kinds of false accusations against him, his attitude was remarkable. And that's what makes him so unique. Because when bad things happen to us, our attitude pretty much stinks, you know, we grumble and complain and bellyache and just say all kinds of things we should have never said and why is this happening to me the way it is and begin to just gripe. And Job had some legitimate questions. He did. But remember, he didn't know what you and I know. And so his questions were founded on on a lack of information, a lack of uh, of of opportunities to soak in and have things sink into his life concerning the things of God. But what he did know, he was committed to. What he did understand, he believed. What he did know, he was faithful to. And so whatever it is you know about God, you need to be faithful to that. Because there are times in our lives when not just physical suffering happens, but the abuse and slander comes our way. And how do you handle those things? The 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, was a remarkable man. I wish I would have had the opportunity to meet him. If I did, I wouldn't be here preaching tonight. But he was a man who was a model of handling personal attacks. During the last seven years of his life, public criticism became intense. So his biographer says these words, Abraham Lincoln was slandered, libeled, and hated perhaps more intensely than any man ever to run for the nation's highest office. Of course, that was written before our previous president and this president, but (laughs) nonetheless. He was publicly called just about every name imaginable by the press of the day, including a grotesque baboon, a third-rate country lawyer who once split rails and now splits the union, a coarse, vulgar, vulgar joker, a dictator, an ape, a buffoon, and others. The Illinois State Register labeled him the craftiest and most dishonest politician that ever disgraced the office in America. Severe and unjust criticism did not subside after Lincoln took oath, the oath of office, nor did it come only... From Southern sympathizers. It came from within the Union itself, from Congress, from some factions within the Republican Party, and initially from within his own cabinet. As President Lincoln learned that no matter what he did, there were going to be people who would not be pleased, as his enemies increased, so did the criticism against him. But Lincoln handled it all with a patience and forbearance and determination uncommon. Of most men. Lincoln had four ways of responding to criticism. First, he most often and simply ignored it, calling it petty. Second, he answered back only when it was important and would make a difference. Third, he formed a habit of sitting down and writing lengthy letters in defense of his integrity and reputation, venting his anger and emotions, then tearing them up and never mailing them. Fourth, he always looked on the brighter side of life and kept a good sense of humor. He truly was grace under pressure. Now, I never had a chance to meet Mr. Lincoln or know anything about the man. And I could read books about him and what he believed about God, and some believe he was a staunch advocate of our Lord. I don't know that. Only the Lord knows. But I do know a little bit about King David. King David was a man who also received lots of criticism. In fact, his son Absalom led a rebellion that would overthrow his kingdom. The Lord said that his sin with Bathsheba, the sword would never leave his home. And it never did. David was forced to abdicate the throne after Absalom stole the hearts of the people through deception and flattery. David, not wanting to harm his own son, simply fled, escaping for his life with his mighty men. One day, in 2 Samuel chapter 16, David was on his way to Baharum. During that time, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David, and at all the servants of, the king, of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. Thus Shimei said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. Behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. The Bible goes on to say these words in verse number 9 of 2 Samuel 16. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. Ida said, go now. David did not. The king said, what have I to do with you, O sons of Zariah? If he curses, if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, My son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite. Let him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of cursing this day. David's response would be a response that would be more than admirable. David was a a huge sinner. Unlike Job. Job was a sinner. But he didn't have these great sins, these secret sins that David had to face the consequences of. And so a lot of his cursing and a lot of the criticism that came his way came as a result of His own sinfulness. But Job, not so much. A completely different person. Chapter 1 sets a tone for the entire book. Chapter 2 sets a tone for the entire book. Because God tells us he was a blameless man. He was an upright man. He was a God-fearing man, turning away from evil, That's what his life consisted of. His character was second to none. And yet he suffered all this negativity from his so-called friends. And when you come to chapter 22, what you have is round three of criticism. You should begin with ding, ding, ding. You know, with the men coming out of their corners that they might you know, erupt with their con- conversation upon David. I mean, excuse me, upon uh, Job. But El- Eliphaz is, is one who, who truly is erroneous in all of his conversation with Job. Thus the title, Eliphaz's Erroneous Errors, because he's completely wrong. And yet he becomes more cruel it becomes more intense. And Job was already pleading with them hey, listen, guys, will you just cover your mouth for a while? Will you just listen to me? Will you listen patiently and diligently? That was last week. Just, just listen to me for a moment as I, as I try to refute what Zophar has said and, and explain some things to you that, that I understand to be true. But they didn't listen, they just looked for the next opportunity to say something. And they would continue their slander, their abuse their criticism, as cruel as it was, right to Job's face. And those who would pass by would hear the conversation. And maybe there were, there were those who would step by and just, just listen to the conversation. Maybe they stopped by just to see the, the grotesque appearance of Job. I don't know. Get a look at this guy who was just so gnarly looking that they couldn't even believe that he even stayed alive. But he was alive. Because he couldn't die because God said, Satan, you can't kill him. And I'm sure, and we've already read, he wishes that he was already dead. The intensity of the pain was enormous. And yet Job was was a man of of great character. So Eliphaz is going to speak, beginning round three. Zophar is done, thank God. Zophar has gone so far away, we are so happy for that. But anyway, these two men will begin the third round and Eliphaz will speak. And as he does, as he begins this third round, he's going to talk about the fact that Job is sinful, Job is secretive, and Job is stubborn. Okay? We're going to talk about that with you for a few moments and then we'll bring it to a conclusion by helping you understand what to do in your dark and dreary days when everything is crumbling around you. And what does the Bible say about that? Chapter 22, verse number one. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, responded, can a vigorous man be of use to God? Or a wise man be be useful to himself? Is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you are righteous or profit if you make your ways perfect? He goes right to the root of Job's sinfulness. He says, in essence, you are proud and arrogant. You think God needs you. You think you're so important that God can't make it without you, that you are indispensable. Now, we know that no man is indispensable and that God needs no man. God uses man. God wants to use you, but God doesn't need you. If God needs you, that means he is lacking in some area of his life They need someone else to do something for him. But God is not that way. God doesn't need us. He wants to use us. And so Eliphaz is going to make the statement that, that Job, you think that you are indispensable to God, that you are so great and so wonderful that God can't make it without you. That's how he begins the conversation. As if he listened to nothing Job said in chapter 21 in his last conversation. And so, he says, is it because of your reverence that he reproves you? That he enters into judgment against you? Is not your wickedness great and your iniquities without end? That's the statement. Your wickedness is great, Joe, And your iniquities are continual. They're always present. They're without end. They don't stop. And Job's sitting there thinking, what are you talking about? How can you say that? You don't even know that. But you see, that's, that's their conclusion because there has to be a reason that Job looks the way he looks. That he's suffering the way he's suffering. That he's not listening to the words of, of counsel from these guys. He's a wicked man. And his wickedness is great. He says, in verse 6, now what he's going to do is he's going to invent lies. He's going to make up things about Job that are not true. Verse 6, for you have taken pledges of your brothers without cause and stripped men naked. You robbed them. To the weary you have given no water to drink and from the hungry (coughs) you have Without bread. You've caused people to starve. You're selfish. You're self-serving. But the earth belongs to the mighty man. And the honorable man dwells in it. In other words, he's saying to Job, that's what you believe. You believe that the the earth belongs to the mighty men. The noble men. And that this is the place for you and no one else. Job never said that. Job never believed that. But you see, he's accusing Job of this. You have sent widows away empty and the strength of orphans you have crushed. That's not true. We've taken you to Job 21. We've taken you to Job 31 and showed you that he is concerned immensely about the widows and the orphans. But you see, he's inventing these lies to help Job eventually see the wickedness of his life. But none of it's true. He says, verse 10, Therefore, Snares surround you and sudden dread terrifies you or darkness so that you cannot see and an abundance of water covers you. This is Job's sinfulness. (coughs) Job, you are so sinful that you are absolutely underwater. You are covered with sin. And you're experiencing, (coughs) excuse me, the, 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 the snares and the traps and the trials because of your sin. That's why it's there, Job. And all throughout the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, this phrase is used over and over again about being underwater, being in deep water to describe the trials that come upon people. And most of the time that phrase is used, it's used in conjunction with people who are criticizing and lying about the psalmist. Let me show you an example. If you turn with me to Psalm chapter 42. It says in verse 7, Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Psalm 69 Verse number one, save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful Being wrongfully my enemies, what I did not steal, I then have to restore. In other words, these are those who have come against him. And because they've come against him so hard, he is underwater. He is overwhelmed. Verse number 14, deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor this pit shut its mouth on me. The phrase that Eliphaz uses is describing Job that he's so far under the waters. Because of his wickedness, he can't see anything that's righteous and true. And that phrase is used throughout the scriptures to point about how man is overwhelmed with with those who have come against him. Psalm 124, verse number 1. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the waters would have engulfed us. The streams would have swept over our soul. Then the raging waters would have swept over our soul. And then again over in the book of uh, of Lamentations, the third chapter, 52nd verse, my enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. They have silenced me in the pit and have placed a stone on me. Waters flowed over my head. I said, I am cut off. I call on your name, O Lord, out of the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. So all throughout the Old Testament, there are many, many more verses that describe that. It talks about being under the weight of trials and tribulations and temptation. And, and, and Eliphaz says to Job, Listen, this is the way you are, man. You have to wake up and smell the coffee. You are sinful. You are so wicked, your sins are continual, so continual that you're overwhelmed by them. You are underwater, Job. Can't you see that? And Job's like, Dude, I don't see that at all. I don't know where you're even getting that from. Because I know that I'm a sinner but there's no great wickedness that I've committed. He searched his heart. So not only did he say that Job is, is sinful, he said Job is secretive. He's a hypocrite. He tries to hide his sin. And this is, what he, this is what he tells Job he believes. Verse 12. Is not God in this height of heaven? Look also at the distant stars. How high they are. You say, Job, what does God know? Can he judge through the thick darkness, clouds are hiding a hiding place for him so that he cannot see, and he walks on the vault of heaven. Will you keep to the ancient path which wicked men have trod? He says, Job, look, you need to look up because there is a God who sees everything, but you say God doesn't see. You say God is behind the clouds, and the clouds are protecting him from seeing what's happening in your life. You think that what you're doing, God doesn't see. You're operating in secret. But Job doesn't believe that. That's obvious by the things that we've already covered in the scriptures. But you see, Elavaz is accusing Job of what he wants Job to think he believes. But it's not true. So he says, Job, you need to look up. Because you've implied that God does not see you or does not know what's going on. But he does he says, Job, You'd look, you need to look back. Why? Because God has ignored, or people have ignored how God has judged the world. Verse 16, who were snatched away before their time, whose foundations were washed away by a river or by a flood. So he references the Genesis flood. Eliphaz does. By telling them how wicked men suffer because of their sin. Who thought God didn't see them or that God didn't care. Or that God wasn't involved or God didn't even exist. But they all died. They were all washed away. Need to look out or look up. Need to look back and need to look out, Job. Why? Because judgment's coming your way. He says, they said to God, depart from us. And what can the Almighty do to them? Yet he filled their houses with good things. But the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see and are glad, and the innocent mock them, saying, Truly, our adversaries are cut off, and their abundance the fire has consumed. Job, look out, because you've invited judgment to come your way. Even though you think God doesn't see, He does. Even though you think God doesn't know, He knows. Even though you think God's too busy, He's not. Now, think about that for a minute, because sometimes we, we get in that mode, don't we? We think that God doesn't see. If you really believe that God saw everything you did, you wouldn't do most of what you do. If you really believe that God was seeing and looking and present with you when you were about to commit sin, you wouldn't do it. But somehow we think that God is is not looking down upon us, that God doesn't see us, that God is somehow so busy doing something else that he's not involved in the everyday affairs of my life because he's involved in the everyday affairs of your life. Or someone who's more important's life. That's just not true. God's involved in every aspect of our lives. Not just certain ones of us, but all of us. And we can get into that trap of thinking that God doesn't see. Because if we knew that God saw us and God was with us, present with us, we wouldn't do the things that we do or say the things that we say. And so Eliphaz is onto something, but the problem is, this is not what Job believes. Job does live in the fear of God all day long. Job is an upright man. He is a blameless man. He knows about God. But Eliphaz is trying to convince him of something that's not true. Job you're sinful, Job is secretive, and Job you're stubborn. And because you're stubborn, you need to repent. So he says in verse number 21, "Yield now and be at peace with him." Thereby, good will come to you. Repent, Job. If you repent, good things will come to you. Eliphaz is a little bit of a prosperity preacher. He thinks that if you repent and you get right with God, all good things are going to happen and come your way. That's not necessarily true. Now, it could happen, but there's no guarantee. But Eliphaz is getting Job, or wants Job to see things from his perspective, Eliphaz's perspective, that Job might truly come to a place where he repents because he's a a wicked sinner and his sins are continual. So he says, need to repent, be reconciled to God. Please receive instruction from his mouth and establish his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove unrighteousness far from your tent and place your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks. In other words, if you repent, if you receive instruction, if you return to the Almighty, if you remove unrighteousness, you'll be wealthy. You'll be right back where you were. But you've got to repent. And then he says this, Then the Almighty will be your gold and choice silver to you. For then you will delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God, as if Job wasn't delighted in the Almighty. Then he says, in verse 27, you will pray to him, he will hear you, and you will pay your vows. The reason God's not hearing you, the reason God's not responding to you, Job, is because he didn't hear you. He didn't hear you because you haven't repented. Until you repent, right, and receive instruction from God alone, right, and return to the Almighty, you can pray all you want, God's not going to hear you. But if you do these things, God will hear Verse 27, you will pray to him, he will hear you, you will pay your vows, you will also decree a thing and it will be established for you and light will shine on your ways. When you are cast down, you will speak with confidence and the humble person will will be saved. He will deliver one who is not innocent and he will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. Joke, listen, just repent. Everything will turn around for you. Everything will be better for you. Your plans will come to fruition. You'll be wealthy once again. You'll be able to pray to God and he'll listen. And things will run right in order. But you've got to repent. The problem with all that is, is that it is true that if you do repent, God does hear you, right? If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, Right? That's why I confess and forsake my sin that I might receive compassion. But yet, it's not true because it's not Job. He again slanders Job's faith. He slanders Job's belief. He speaks against what Job knows to be true. And that's the way his friends are. And yet, you read James 5 and you've heard of the endurance and the patience of Job. In my own mind, I'm thinking, this conversation, or these conversations, have have caused his physical pain to take a backseat. Because the emotional pain coming from the conversations, because they accuse him of everything down the pike, that's all I can think about. So his, his pain, his physical pain, has been directed in another direction so that he can focus in on the conversation with these men because they're so wrong. The question comes for you and me, what happens when we're criticized? What happens when we're condemned? What happens when people speak cruel things to us? How do we respond? You see, we, like Job, need to be rescued. And we need to be rescued to a place of refuge. And that place of refuge is where the rock of our salvation lies. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Because Jeremiah was a man who did not receive much praise. In fact, he received no praise. Because nobody listened to what Jeremiah had to say. But he was criticized. He was thrown into a pit, pit. He was ridiculed. By Israel, his own nation. Okay? And in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse number 19, he says, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, and my refuge in the day of distress. What made Jeremiah a unique prophet? God was his refuge in the day of distress. Chapter 17, verse number 17. Do not be a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. So Jeremiah says, in the day of distress, you are my refuge. In the day of disaster, you are my refuge. You are my hiding place. You are my secure place. To emphasize the fact that there's really only one secure place. It's not your bedroom or your bathroom. Or your cabin in the mountains. Or your house in Laguna Beach. Your place of refuge is the Lord God of Israel. That's where you're secure. In the day of disaster, in the day of distress, this is where you go. Listen to what it says in Nahum 1, verse number 7. Nahum 1, verse number 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold. In the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. God knows those who take refuge in him. Charles Spurgeon, in his devotional, Morning and Evening, says this about Jeremiah 17 17, where God is our refuge in the day of disaster. He says, The path of the Christian is not always bright with sunshine, he has his seasons of darkness. And of storm. True, it is written in God's word: "Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace." And it is a great truth that religion is calculated to give a man happiness below as well as bliss above. But experience tells us that, at the course of the just be as the shining light that shineth more and more into the perfect day, yet sometimes that light is eclipsed. At certain periods clouds cover the believer's sun and he walks in darkness and he sees no light. There are many who have rejoiced in the presence of God for a season. They have basked in the sunshine in the early stages of their Christian career. They have walked along the green pastures by the side of the still waters. But suddenly They find the glorious sky is clouded. Instead of the Lord of Goshen, or the land of Goshen, excuse me, they have to tread the sandy desert. In the place of sweet waters, they find troubled streams, bitter to their taste. And they say, surely, if I were a child of God, this would never happen. Oh, say not so, thou who art walking in darkness. The best of God's saints must drink the wormwood. The dearest of his children must bear the cross. No Christian has enjoyed perpetual prosperity. No believer can always keep his heart from the willows. Perhaps the Lord allotted you a first, at first a smooth and unclouded path because you were weak and timid. He tempered the wind to the shorn lamb. But now that you are stronger in the spiritual life, you must enter upon the riper and rougher experience of God's full-grown children. We need winds and tempests to exercise our faith, to tear off the rotten bough of self-dependence and to root us more firmly in Christ. The day of evil or the day of disaster or distress reveals to us the value of our glorious hope. Spurgeon's right. We believe that things will be at ease and things will be blissful for us because we've given our lives to Christ and we're children of the living God and we're to be at peace with our brethren and peace with God and and things are going to be great. But there are times that are so severe, so disastrous, so difficult, so hard. We need a refuge. And the only person who can do that is our Lord. The psalmist in In Psalm 71 said these words. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given commandment to save me for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O oh my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the wrongdoer and ruthless man. For you are my hope, O oh Lord God. You are my confidence for my youth. By you I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. The psalmist knew he needed a refuge, and God was his refuge. The psalmist knew he needed a rescued, and God was his rescuer. The psalmist needed a rock. A rock is immovable. A rock is something that sustains you, which is so desperately needed. And the psalmist would deal with it in such a way that others around him would know that the Lord was his god when it comes to criticism when it comes to slanderous words when it comes to those who would speak against us as those who spoke against job you need a refuge you need to be rescued but only god can do that nobody else can and you need a rock it says in psalm 18 i love you o lord my strength The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold, I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. And I'm saved from my enemies. You want to be saved from your enemies? You need a fortress. You need a refuge. You need a rock. You need a redeemer. That's what you need. And he calls upon the name of the Lord and he saves them from his enemies. Psalm 31. And you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Verse number one, let me never be ashamed and your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. Did you get that? My rock and my fortress will lead you and guide you not for your sake, but for his name's sake. That is so important to grasp. It's never about you. It's always about God. So he says, you will pull me out of the net, which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. Over in Psalm 62, psalmist says these words, Psalm 62, verse 6. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold, I should not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rests. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him, for God is a refuge. That's Psalm 62. Psalm 61 says, Hear my cry, O God. (coughs) Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Isaiah 44. God says in verse number 8, Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declare it and you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? I know God says, there is no other rock. There is no other redeemer. There is no other rescuer. There is no other refuge. Pray tell, where are you going? What are you doing? Come to me. Come to the rock that is higher than yourself. Come to the stability of the rock. Come to the serenity of the rock. Because the rock is a place where you... hide. And are secure. It's so important that when criticism comes, we truly seek refuge in the rock that will rescue us. The Apostle Paul tells us something in Second Timothy chapter 4 about his accusers. Verse number 14. He says to Timothy, "Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching." Verse sixteen. At my first defense, no one supported me; all deserted me. May not be counted against them. You got to love that about Paul. I stood all by myself. Had all these friends. Thought I had. But guess what? At my first defense, they all ran away. Nobody was there. I stood all alone. Ah, oh, but he wasn't alone. For it says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. He says, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He tells Timothy that amidst my accusers, and amidst all those who, who abandoned me, the Lord stood with me. And not only did he just stand there, he stand there and supported me and strengthened me. Why? Why? So the proclamation of the gospel would continue. We told you earlier about that God is there for his name's sake. It's about his glory and his honor. Amidst Paul's imprisonment, amidst all that Paul was recollecting while he sat in the Mamertine prison and reflected upon his life, trying to encourage Timothy, he says, Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith is vicious. He violently opposes the gospel, the truth. If you go back and you read it, I think it's Acts 19, you begin to understand Alex, uh, Alexander the coppersmith's attitude toward the apostle Paul. But even though he was abandoned and accused accused by his enemy, abandoned by his friends, right? There was a rock that stood with him. There was a refuge that was beside him. And that was the Lord who stood there and strengthened him for one purpose. That the proclamation of the gospel would continue. And it would go out so others would hear and believe and follow the Christ. Do you ever think that in the midst of, of your disaster, in the midst of your, your distress, in the midst of your, your, your being slandered and ridiculed, that, that God has a, has a greater purpose for you? Not just to keep people from doing that to you. That's what you want to see happen. We want to be rescued from them. We want to be delivered out of their presence. But the Lord, Paul says, the Lord will rescue me from every evildoer. In other words, he will rescue me in this life or rescue me by taking me out of this life into the next life. Because he says very clearly that he rescued me out of the lion's mouth, the place of, of death, the place of being torn to shreds. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Every evil deed and will bring me safety to the heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God has been my refuge, my rock, my rescuer, my redeemer. So when everybody else deserted me, it was okay. Because the Lord stood with me. Remember John 16? When Christ said to his men, you're all going to desert me. You're all going to leave me alone. And yet, I won't be alone. Because my Father is with me. She's a believer, you're never alone. You always have the Christ, He's always there to stand with you and to strengthen you. Why? Because the purpose for your being here is to be able to tell others about the saving grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. So God will take you through these difficult times. So take you through these disastrous times. So take you through these times of distress so that some way, somehow, the gospel will go forth through the life, your life, that others might receive the truth of Christ, the Savior of the world. Job sat and listened and endured not just the physical affliction but the verbal abuse. And as he did, he was being used by God. He was used by God in your life and mine, and by all those who would, who would read the story of Job. But all the while, God was doing something in the life of Job for Christ's name's sake. What he did in Job's life was not for Job. It was for his own glory, Right? Everything about Job's life was for the glory and honor of his, of his God. Job would finally grasp all that, repent in dust and ashes. Once God revealed to himself or to, to Job who he really is, it was a revelation of the character of God that changed Job's life. That God is that individual and the only individual that you can trust that you can believe in and follow. Nobody else. And as as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, our sole purpose should be to be be so enraptured with the Christ, to study him to such lengths we understand he's with us, he's for us, and will strengthen us as we go through our times of distress and disaster. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for tonight and a chance to once again peer into the truth of your word. We read about Job and we read verses about him and we hear what his comforters or miserable comforters say and, and we wonder why they even say what they say, why they just be quiet, leave the poor guy alone. But behind all that, Lord, is, is something you want us to learn. As we listen to Job, as we watch Job, as we begin to see him from a huge distance, we're able to see the hand of God in his life. Now, there was a man from the land of us. He wasn't just any man. He wasn't an ordinary man. He surely was an extraordinary man. And as we continue our study will become more and more extraordinary in our lives because there really isn't anybody else like him in scripture and there certainly isn't anybody like him on earth today and so you've given him to us that we might see how it is you work in people's lives because Lord you're at work in our life even tonight as we speak there are those among us who have been criticized, condemned slandered verbally abused. And they need a rescuer. They need a refuge. They need a rock. They need a redeemer. And that's you. For there is no one else but you. You said it. Is there any other rock? Answer? No. Is there any other God? Answer? No. There's just one. And Lord, we are so pleased to know the only one. In Jesus' name, amen.